Hi friends and welcome to the first Central Committee broadcast of 2022. This time we'll be looking at what happened at the CC Away Day and the upcoming deadline for member applicants to be proposed for membership. But before then, I'll hand over to Sean and Angel to cover the news. Comrade, is there a colour revolution ongoing in Kazakhstan right now? A few differences that I'd pick out between what we see characteristically with a colour revolution and what's happening in Kazakhstan at the moment. The first and most important is the presence of like actual material demands. So the protests were over a rise in fuel costs and there's key demands around like nationalisation of oil, lowering the cost of fuel, a bunch of other material demands as well, which you can get into in a bit. What you see with a colour revolution is you don't tend to see anything concrete because the point of a colour revolution is to have unrest that outside actors can kind of pour their own agenda into. You don't see demands for, for example, women's suffrage or the right to vote for immigrants or the make, make this particular political party legal again that used to, that's been made illegal and not been allowed to run or something like that, right? You see very abstract things that, that any kind of agenda can be poured into, so like free and fair elections, democracy and human rights. We, we demand the fall of the regime, you know, the, the behead the leader type stuff. No program for what's going to replace it, no particular demands that are material that you can start to think, well, who's who's going to be demanding that, right? Material demands are also really important for getting to grips with the class interests at play, right? Because who's going to be demanding cheaper fuel, right? It's not the people selling it. It's the people who, who are depending on it and having to buy it. Equally, you know, who's going to be demanding higher wages? And so with the Cutler Revolution, all of that has to be really obscured. And that's why you see the, the demands of that sort. Are there any kind of other features that you'd pick out as distinct? For Cutler Revolution, so it's not perfect. It's not perfect science, but... Colour revolutions don't happen in Canada. Colour revolutions don't happen in Wales. Colour revolutions don't really happen in South Korea, you know, places like this. You can you can follow the chain between the countries that have been colour revolutioned, quote unquote, versus the ones that, that haven't. As you look and you start to see uh, a lot of these countries uh, aren't liked by the West or they are unfortunate neutrals in positions where if they happened to be pro-West, it would not benefit them, but it would massively benefit the West in some other major project. So like putting Kazakhstan back in focus then, like, this is not a country that is particularly uh, unpopular with the West. This article, which we'll, we'll share in the newsroom channel, is talking about how like 70% of the oil that's produced in Kazakhstan is exported to the West. It's not like Venezuela or Iran or a country where they, they're supplying oil to, to the West's enemies, right? They're, they're primarily exporting to the West. Obviously, there's more than, more than one commodity in the world. But when you look at something like oil, there's there's nothing obvious that would suggest, oh, that there's there's some agenda here to try and destabilize this government, this this sort of anti-West government. Um, it's it's not the case here. Should we get into how the protests actually start? The the protests that have come out this time started in incredibly oil-rich area of Kazakhstan, where oil is the main industry. It's oil, and then it's everything that props up and supports oil. The area is not unfamiliar with pretty bad things happening uh, in regards to it. 
this is the area of Kazakhstan where uh, forty thousand oil workers were laid off. Like I can't, I can't fathom that many people um, in one location. Never mind every single one of them being told they don't have work anymore in that same region as part of protests that have happened in the past. Uh, the Kazakhstan government killed around 15 protesters, uh, which actually resulted in the Kazakhstan government being advised directly by Tony Blair uh, on its PR image. It's a completely despicable place with horrible, despicable things are happening to, to oil workers uh, in that country. The left opposition and uh, independent opposition in Kazakhstan doesn't really exist. It hasn't for a long time. Communist parties are illegal. Uh, the socialist movement is illegal. Um, independent trade unions are illegal. They do not exist. The oil regions are where this particular round of protests have kicked off from following a wildcat strike that was carried out following a 100% increase in the price of fuel. This is fuel that is from Kazakhstan being charged double to the very people that extract it and, and refine it and live in the country that it came from. And obviously all that profit, you know, these workers can see fully well themselves. They know exactly who it's going to. They know exactly the, the names of the foreign CEOs that are uh, that own these oil companies that are taking it out and raising these prices on them. Specifically, as we said, demands that you don't typically see uh, are coming in from the protests. A couple of demands uh, that have come out from the socialist movement. Uh, the socialist movement, uh, just for context, is uh, the kind of Trotskyist brand uh, of uh, the socialist movement who called for end to hostilities against the people of Kazakhstan, which has been ongoing um, through the, the Kazakhstan military and the police. The resignation of the president and government officials, uh, the release of political prisoners, the right to independent and workers' uh, trade unions and political parties, the legal right to hold strikes and meetings, a re-legalisation of both the, the Communist Party of Kazakhstan uh, and the Socialist Movement of Kazakhstan. Again, the Socialist Movement is the, the one specifically putting this demand out so for themselves and for the Communist Party. Demands are not consistent in this. There is no overarching leadership to take things through and kind of have like consistent demands but um including among multiple demands there are some common points like uh food and fuel prices coming back down to reasonable levels the lowering of re the retirement age in kazakhstan uh, and in fact one uh one document that has gone up uh as a, as a photograph from uh protests uh specifically mentions uh the, between the ages of 58 to 60 uh, of which it is um is higher, much higher than that, uh, as well as increased pension benefits. Again, these aren't like you know, lower food prices, lower fuel prices. Uh, more people will be in retirement, and those people who are retired having better benefits and 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 retirement uh, payments. These are not demands that, in my opinion, at least, come from the people that are going to have to foot the bill for this. You know. Yeah, yeah. Like Joe Biden didn't write these in the White House, you know. Like, um, these are are obviously like material proletarian demands from people who are are genuinely aggrieved and suffering from poverty and from the massive extraction of capital, um, that is being carried out by not just the West but by every every sort of trading partner of Kazakhstan, really. So, taking everything into account, Sean, like, how would you summarize this? 
I would summarise this as a, a an ongoing situation. I don't think it's quite finished yet. I think this is a genuine protest that has come out from people suffering. There is some confusion still that I would still like to see some more of. I, yeah, I to sum up, uh, I, I quite firmly, I, yeah, I put my hand up. I don't fully know yet. Uh, I know that the situation is bad in Kazakhstan for workers. I know that it is not. It is not a country to look at and think like, oh, uh, it's going to be. It's you know, it's going to get swallowed up in the U.S. influence. It kind of already is under U.S. influence, despite its geographical position to Russia and its relationships there. It straddles that that interesting, unique line. And yeah, that's. I would. I. I, I want to see more, and I, I. I hope that some of the protesters' demands are met. Um, yeah, I think the things to kind of watch out for then are like what what demands are being met. So they have already, um, as I understand it, agreed to a lowering of the gas price, for example. So that's a that's a major victory already. Um, the other things to watch out for are like the fact that there is no kind of legal communist party and that kind of thing is that there's a a, a kind of vacuum of leadership of of this kind of movement, and this is often the case with these very spontaneous things. So we're looking out for for co-option of this because you you can be sure that the West is operating in this country and so are a number of other sort of competing great powers trying to advance their own agendas. The risk is with, with a disorganized proletarian uprising that, that it becomes co-opted and a, a different agenda starts to get advanced. But in terms of those like material demands, um, like that's that's the main thing that you keep, keep an eye on in terms of what we should be doing, obviously opposing any kind of intervention from our from our own countries, from NATO, this kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I've specifically, as a, as a, as a wrap up here, uh, Left East, um, which is the website by the founder of uh, East is a podcast, they've put out an article uh, that was a, a translation of an article that came out on a Russian language website with the leader, one of the leaders of the socialist movement in Kazakhstan. Uh, an addendum on the end of the article by the author includes. Uh, under the pressure from the protests, uh, President Tokayev made unprecedented social concessions. He promised state regulation of gas, gasoline and socially important goods, a moratorium on raising utility bills, subsidising rents for housing for the poor and the creation of a public fund to support health care and children. Obviously not anything near the list of demands that had been made but it does look like this has uh, worked already it seems like if i was if i was to finally sum it up it seems like everyone was taken a little bit by surprise yeah well put thanks sean thanks angel now i'm joined by talia to talk about the member applicant deadline hey talia how are you hi i'm good thanks how are you doing yeah, I'm grand. Thank you. Um, so you're here today to talk to me about the member application process and specifically the, the upcoming deadline. What's that all about? So the idea is we are proposing a deadline of the 31st of January, so the end of this month, for all branches to propose member applicants for membership. We really want to encourage to be really proactive about this. And if you have any kind of concerns about a member applicant or you think Maybe they're ready, maybe they're not, or you're not quite sure. Just put them forward, write as much as you can in the application process, which I'll explain in a second. But just really be um, kind of confident about it and, yeah, to put them ahead, even if you're worried about it. 
And the idea is we're aware that there's a bit of a bit of a lull in new members coming in, so we really want to get that started again. And the idea of this deadline is to just make sure that it happens. Totally. Yeah, that makes sense. What information does the Central Committee need about member applicants and how do branches submit that? Primarily a little bit around who the applicant is, a little bit about their political history, um, sort of who they are, how they found their fight back, what kind of theoretical development they have, that sort of information, just a sort of a bit of context. Most importantly, we want to be knowing how they've been engaging with the branch. So are they coming to regular meetings? Are they coming to the stall? Are they engaging with any kind of initiatives the branches are doing? So like reading groups, that sort of thing. And a little bit about their kind of theoretical development they've done as well. We're kind of looking for engagement with theory and that sort of thing. Um, the reason it's a little bit vague around what you can do is, as said before, we want to have many past membership. So we want to make sure that if for any reason the branch thinks that they're capable and deserving of membership, then you can put that forward and give that to us. We also really want to have a bit of input from, from the branch themselves on a sort of personal level as well. So this could be from the branch secretary, it could be from the mentor, or also just any kind of delegate from the branch really, just a little bit around um, or from a more personal side. The way we're going to run this as well is we're going to have a, a spreadsheet that we're going to send out and there's going to be a sheet at each branch and a list of member applicants and you can write this information into the boxes there. Lush, thank you. I think a couple of things that I'd add is just like we've obviously spoken about a sort of roughly six month timeline um, and just to re-emphasize what you said like it's not about right what was the date that they sent in an application and has it been six months to the day it's about like that's kind of roughly the amount of time to get to know someone to see someone on good days and bad days and so on to get a proper sense of them but that's what we're looking for rather than any particular mechanism or like really sort of limited um, framework. Uh, Yeah for example if someone's come in and they've um, spent much less than six months, but they're being like really, really engaged with the branch. They're really proving their worth. Put them forward. Um, do it, please. Yeah, and frankly, in some branches where there is a really small membership and you're really desperately in need of of extra members as well, like the case there is certainly um one which like might necessitate um bypassing that length of time. Additionally, there might also be members where you're like, it's been six months, but actually we don't feel like we've got a good grasp on you yet. Um, so you might need longer. So um, it's about having an individual approach for the different needs and contexts of branches and member applicants. What's the situation with the solidarity modules? Because they're beginning to roll out and we've spoken about them being sort of a necessity that they're mandatory for member applicants. Um, How's that going to work? We aren't expecting member applicants to have taken them by this deadline. If they have taken them, then amazing. That's great. If you've been able to do them in your branch, it's fantastic. Um, If you haven't managed to do it yet, um, if they're going to happen, say, in February or something like that instead, then put them forward anyway. And But there is the expectation that they will be taking those shortly after. But there's no kind of hard limit there. So don't worry about that. Just put them forward. Yeah, absolutely. We'll be making sure that people are doing these, members and member applicants. Um, but the important thing is to, like, let's get things moving. Let's get people into the party um, and making sure that those are happening, you know, presently as well as into the future. So to reiterate then, 
please do fill in that spreadsheet before the 31st of January. Um, that's the way to convey information to us. If you do have any questions or if there's any information that you think is particularly sensitive that you don't want on the spreadsheet, um, then feel free to contact your branch liaison, um, Talia, myself, anyone on the central committee, um, and feel free to discuss that with us directly. Please do fill that in. Um, thank you all very much. And thank you, Talia, for all your work and for coming on. Thank you for having me, Jay. Anytime. I want to just give you a short summary of the Central Committee's Away Day held last weekend. It was our first of the year. We met partially in person, partially online for a whole day to discuss the political context we find ourselves in, the state of the party and our plans for the coming months. The first part of the day, we looked at the political context that we find ourselves in. You might remember that in the previous Central Committee, we would look at the political context every week in our meetings. Um, Instead, this term, we're taking a longer term look at events. Obviously, the day-to-day news is still important, especially for things like communication work or local organising. But for the Central Committee's sort of wider strategic outlook, we're now utilising our way days, which will be every three months, to do deep dives into key areas rather than sort of rushing through every week um, and losing focus of that overall picture. Comrades presented four different papers, uh, imperialism, gentrification, unions and economics, which are kind of key areas of priority for the Central Committee and for the party. We covered imperialism in the context of the pandemic first, looking at the distribution of vaccines globally with a shockingly low lumber in Africa and significantly higher costs in Latin America. There's plenty to be wary of. Imperialists and capitalists are excited about the African continental free trade area, which lends us to think that this is therefore not positive for Africa. Uh, We noted the structure of new trade deals between imperialist countries. They tend to be equal, whilst with developing countries, the imperialist market is open. The trend towards globalisation continues, counter-tendency towards protectionism is faltering. Measures that have been put in place to bring industry back to the imperial core are weakening economic conditions, but not actually reversing that trend. So in terms of what that means for us, we're not actually expecting the reindustrialization of Britain. Um, we don't expect to be organising coal workers in the next few years. These sort of large economic events do have a very concrete impact into Britain and, and our day-to-day organising on the ground. We need to ensure that we continue and deepen our organising in diasporic communities. It's vital that we're able to articulate where imperialism leads to, and we can draw our anti-imperialist analysis through practical work. We noted that it would be useful for us to develop the way that we actually analyse the class composition of diasporic communities we organise in. We also discussed here and also in the economic section, understanding the weak spots in the production process is a really key part of a sort of longer term strategy of revolution. Opposing imperialist wars isn't done by demonstrating and marching, but by, you know, arms factory workers or dock workers striking, for example. Uh, We looked at the examples of the Oakland cargo ship boycotts and Palestine action. Um, and ports are of particular interest to us. We had a conversation around that as ports are sort of merge border violence and trade and war into one physical space of increasing prominence. We discussed China and agreed that our current position remains sufficient. Um, That position is to oppose imperialist aggression in China and indeed everywhere. We can say that China is in a position where it's being exploited and attacked and and that is uncontroversial. Um, The question of how we do that practically is definitely one for the party to develop. The second paper was on gentrification. CC discussed how the way we need to tackle gentrification needs to change. We need to engage differently with black and brown comrades and communities, as it is an obviously heavily racialized phenomenon. 
our approach has generally been towards the gentrification itself to focus on that as sort of an abstract entity. Um, but we can definitely do a better job of engaging with the people and specifically the black and brown people who are most targeted by gentrification and doing so beyond just the literature. We discussed sort of a common liberalism that we identified where people worry about sort of getting things wrong or needing perfect knowledge before talking to real people. We noted the need for the party to develop via involvement in black and brown media and knowledge production. We discussed that gentrification has increased throughout the pandemic and that the pandemic has been a justification for masking and intensifying that process. As more and more branches look at that issue, we note the ambition of branches such as North London to build a reputation as an anti-gentrification group. Uh, Comrades LG and TH will be exploring a research group in the coming weeks and months um, that looks to compile data and research about gentrification, as we understand that data is quite limited at present um, because there isn't a wide range of sort of groups that are connecting different gentrification struggles across Britain. This will also include research into things like transport connections and demographics and census data when that comes out in May. The next paper was on unions. We noted increased union membership, especially in the public sector, while private sector union membership is going down. There are more people in unions now than in previous years, but we are, of course, still far off the 17 million that was uh, the 70s union membership. It's also important to consider union connections with the Labour Party at the moment. They've increasingly not seen a return or an investment for time, energy and money that they put into Labour. Unions fundamentally don't feel served by a political party anymore, and increasingly so, which leaves a wide gap for a proletarian party to step up. As we begin to develop the party's engagement with unions over the year, we anticipate a near future where we can have serious and consequential engagement with unions across Britain. In terms of the limited revolutionary potential of unions, we are nowhere near hitting that yet. We do have a long way to go. As ever, we encourage members to join their recognised workplace union or whichever union is best placed for you, as well as renters' unions, and to get involved. You know, go to meetings, stand for leadership, push the union in a better direction. This is especially true, of course, for geographically isolated comrades who might be struggling to find others to work alongside. Our final paper was on economics, and we looked at the last few decades from the early 1970s when capitalism entered into a structural crisis with events such as the 1973 oil crisis, the collapse of Bretton Woods and stagflation. Um, and we looked sort of onwards towards 2001 and 2008 recessions, as well as, of course, COVID bringing us to present day. We noted the ongoing interest rate and inflation situation, which we did largely predict back in 2020, as well as the living cost crisis fast approaching in 2022. As the energy crisis looms, there are knock-on effects regarding things like Nord Stream 2 and fertiliser prices, which then impact food supplies and costs. Turkey has been suffering from inflation soaring to 30% in December, and Lebanon faces an economic crisis and IMF imposition. Practically, the need for programmatic responses via mutual aid, food provision, food programmes, both cooking for people and distributing supplies, community gardens and self-sustainability projects will increase in prominence. And we do encourage branches to consider this ongoing economic trend and these various parts of that within their decisions of what they prioritise organising on. The afternoon of the away day was focused more on the party itself. We addressed the question of apathy and engagement in the party. The party's gone through a significant period of growth and we made a lot of changes at, at Congress in 2021. The skills and attitudes effective for the first two years of Red Fight Back's existence will, of course, be different from the ones that we're going to need going forward. Some of the work in expanding working groups and putting in organic things, making them more structured, has worked and some hasn't adapted so well. Um, so we are 
maintaining in a period of change. There are a number of potential causes to engagement not being where we want it to be, and they're going to differ from comrade to comrade. It can come from the sense sometimes that you're doing something and you don't know why. Um, the revolutionary project is obviously something that's very long term. It can only be measured in decades, uh, but it's impossible to plan and articulate these things in terms of decades. So the connection between what we're doing and where we're heading can sometimes be difficult to see. Having clearer discussions around party strategy, as well as branch and caucus strategies, will help with this. If you haven't read it yet, our article on Red Fight back in 2022 is a really good starting point to understanding our strategy a little better, as well as our full party strategy, of course, which was set at Congress. The Central Committee needs to improve the centralised guidance we're providing, and we'll be looking to equip branches with more of the basics of setting up a stool, establishing a mentorship team, and so on in the coming weeks and months. Simultaneously, we also need to find ways that every branch and every member can be effective. And sometimes we'll lean too far one way and too far the other. And we've got to find the balance between that centralised, standardised guidance with a singular direction from us, as well as manifesting that within particular contexts and specificities um, in any one branch or place. We recognise the importance of communication in solving this problem around engagement too. Branches are doing work, but often don't know what's happening in other branches. One way that I think we can solve that is via exactly these broadcasts. And I do really encourage branch secretaries and caucus secretaries to get in touch with me and come on to talk about what you're doing um, sometime soon. We also know the crisis of confidence across the party and the damage that does. It's something we've discussed a fair bit um, across the party's history. And we really need to kind of get used to failure, to value trying and failing more than ever trying at all. It's the only way that we're going to improve. And obviously education can be a key way to address confidence too, but motivation and action can sometimes be more effective to get things moving and see results and see our own competence. We know that some comrades are very confident and can take up a lot of space and we, we encourage people to find a balance. For those who do feel confident talking, make sure you're facilitating others to contribute too. And for those who do struggle to contribute, we remind you that we do want to hear your perspective. You don't need to have the right words. You don't need to bring you know, constant originality or brilliance to the table. We just want you where you are. We recognise the importance of mentorship in solving confidence problems, whereby individual and consistent support in relationship to one another can help to grow confidence step by step. We want to thank the comrades in the party who are stepping into positions that they don't feel prepared for because they recognise the wider duty of our project. This is true of many CC members as well as, of course, um, branch and caucus leadership too. We encourage you to make sure that others who might step up with more encouragement aren't overstepped by your readiness to establish structures to delegate responsibilities outwards. Sometimes we also need to be firm with telling people to step back, especially when people take on responsibilities that don't necessarily deliver on the work itself, as that obscures the actual number of people and capacity we have focusing on a particular area of work. The next session we had was a tactical review of what we do on the ground. We're keen to move beyond just stool tactic and heard from a few branches who are doing just that, such as the two London branches and Liverpool branch. Stools are immensely useful, serving a strategic goal of establishing a branch into regular activity. There are safe contexts to develop individually and as a branch, and to test a branch's logistics and consistency with relatively low risk. You know, if a stool fails to get off the ground, we can recover from that quite easily. But we can't view the stool as an be-all and end-all of organising. They're not the core of our organising, but just the first step of it. They also serve to bring our members into contact with people who frankly often need revolution far more so than many of our members. It's vital that we never forget that we fight for our class, not ourselves, not our party. As we look beyond stores in our context, we'll be utilising party education to help comrades push further. North London is wrapping up a community organising training programme 
and I'm really excited to see that roll out across the party more generally. We also discussed the team looking at May's local elections in 22. It's early days, but our current plan is to look to pair a leafleting campaign in wars where we run stalls with materials addressing national and local issues that would also promote public meetings held the day after the election simultaneously across branches, where we invite local residents to come and discuss resisting whoever happens to get elected. If you have thoughts on how this local election strategy might impact your branch or might look like in your branch, um, do go through the person who your branch is sending to those meetings. And if you haven't got anyone that's representing you in those meetings, um, do feel free to, to send a delegate my way. Our next session involved planning the remaining months of our term. And whilst I won't go into too much detail now, by the end of January, we asked that branches and caucuses send their strategy documents to the Central Committee for us to look over. You can do this by sending it to your branch liaison or just sending directly to me on comms. If you're struggling with putting your strategy together, let your liaison know. Support will be available to you, especially over coming weeks and months. We also remind you that the end of January is the deadline for submitting member applicants to CC for review. Our last session was discussing internal CC management from our week plans, reports, to the importance of CC members being involved with branch work. CC is looking at how to make our reports more immediately readable to you and how to encourage our scrutiny sessions to be more lively. We'll be having another scrutiny session at the end of January, so keep an eye out for more details on that. Lastly, CC is currently reviewing its portfolio assignments and who is which secretary on the committee, and changes will be announced next week after CC has met as a whole to review. Thank you so much for listening to this broadcast, um, and we will catch you next time. Bye.